One of my go-to questions in CSM was asking if your renewal was tomorrow, would you renew? And it was a super direct question, but I loved it because I often got a very direct answer. And if it was yes, I would follow up and ask the customer to walk me through why. What did they justify in their mind to have the confidence to say that they would renew? And if they were like, no, that was equally as important because I could assess like, hey, are the reasons that they are saying they were not renewed today within our control for us to be able to change? Or is it truly inevitable that they may not be a good fit customer? Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Sydney Strader, the VP of Customer Success at Catalyst, a customer success platform. Prior to joining Catalyst, Sydney was the VP of Customer Success at InVision. In this episode, we focus on founder-led customer success, an area of early company building that I find is often overlooked. We start off with how to structure early customer check-ins. And Sydney shares a great framework to help surface more specific feedback. She also dives into the most impactful questions that founders and customer success managers should ask all of their customers. In addition to chatting about how to spin up product education and training for the team, Sydney also shares her thoughts on how to connect insights back to the product team and adjust your roadmap. We dig into why she thinks everyone should own the net revenue retention metric, not just the customer success function. And Sydney shares some really great specific tips on comp plans. Finally, we get into how to make your first customer success hire. Sydney details the ideal candidate profile and outlines the difference between a good and great CSM. She also shares tactical advice on structuring your interview process. From the questions to ask to how to design the ideal panel presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Even if you're not in customer success, I think there's a lot to learn here about surfacing product feedback and staying focused on the customer. And now my conversation with Sydney. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So I thought one place we could get going might be talking about customer success in the early days. Talk about scaling customer success over time as an organization starts to mature. I'm curious, what do you think that early function or work should look like? What's been written about and shared a lot is how to think about founder-led sales and the importance of doing that well in the first year. But there's been a lot less written about founder-led customer success, how to think about that work in the early days and how to think about when to hire the first person in that function. I'm curious in that vein, what have you figured out? If a CEO and founder or co-founder start with the mentality of CS at the center of your organization, I think investing in that early is critically important because 
CS can be the nucleus and the central communication center for the broader business in terms of helping sales understand how to effectively set expectations with customers and how they can be successful using the product to help product and engineering understand what is it about the product that's built today that's driving value or where there's additional value to be met. And also from the go-to-market engine, when you think of marketing and demand gen efforts and how to make sure that early and often we're bringing in a right profile of customer that meets the criteria of what the product can offer and can make them successful. Those early customers are always the gamblers, the ones that are willing to take a leap of faith on some new technology, but they can also be your most powerful advocates and amplify that founder-led sale that you were talking about as well. Before a given founder thinks about hiring their first CS person, what are the rituals or activities a founder and CEO should be doing when they have the first, call it, five customers using their product in their early days? I think it's staying incredibly close to those customers, having those routine engagements, those conversations with the customer, making sure that they're getting full value from the product. Particularly in those early days, you're having those routine calls on the calendar, making sure that they're really understanding the full value of the product, adopting it, measuring that adoption and articulating that value. Those early customers are also integral in helping to keep that pulse. It's common and appropriate to overinvest in those customers because they are generally taking a leap of faith with the intention of being heavily influential in your business specifically, and they can really help shape and help you scope what kind of evolution you ultimately see in customer success. So I think it is truly those engagements of probably biweekly check-ins, bare minimum, at that point in time to understand why they bought, what is it that they're using the product for today, how are they communicating that value back to their business, And what is it about the product that is or isn't there today that would continue to make them a stickier customer if that was evolved and introduced? If we zoom in on a biweekly check-in, how do you run that well? How do you keep it useful for you and interesting to the early customers such that you're not just going through the motions every other week? One of my favorite questions when I was a CSM is I tell my customers, I want to be the best CSM that you've ever worked with. And in order for me to achieve that level of recognition, what is it of value that I can bring to each and every engagement that would make our conversations high value and something you would want to routinely have? There was a very consistent theme that I got from every single customer, and that was bring to the table something that I don't know that you know. That could be knowledge of our product, that could be use cases on how it could be applied. Often it was me doing analysis of how they were adopting the product and coming with insights of my understanding of your business goals of why you purchased us was ABC. Based on how I've analyzed how you're using our product, you are achieving it for A and B, but you're missing on C. Here's what you can be doing in the product that would help drive the strategic value of the conversation. It would allow customers to feel like in every engagement that they were having with me, they were going to get something that they didn't otherwise have. That to me also just opened up a great bi-directional communication with the customer when I set the tone and expectation of my only goal is their success and wanting to be someone that they truly got extensive value from in each and every one of their engagements. So I often leaned into the customer to help dictate to me if I was going to invest the calories to add value to them, what is it from their perspective that would be of highest value? And that really helped me streamline my focus and attention as well. Do you find it's easy to get on the calendar and have these syncs? Or do you look for a subset of customers that are willing to kind of engage more deeply in those first few months? Do you have any lessons learned about actually trying to engage and get high quality feedback? And one of the reasons that I asked that, I was talking to one of our CEOs who's six months in and building, call it a developer tool. 
And they found that really engaging and getting high quality feedback from some of the people that are tinkering with their product in the early days is actually not that easy, particularly when you're selling to developers who often don't like getting together and sharing how they're (laughs) thinking about the product or what have you. Yeah. I was going to say, I honestly believe just based on my experience, I've sold to customer success professionals, marketers, designers, engineers, in terms of the companies I've been a part of that we've sold to. And there is definitely a persona spectrum of the eagerness. It's so fortunate, a catalyst selling to CS professionals and they being peers to myself in the market, very often and eager to get on calls, give feedback because that's their day-to-day job. They understand how critically important it is to gather that feedback and how influential that can be in helping us, a catalyst, evolve our processes to add even more value to them. I'm not surprised when you say that you've worked with someone in the developer space and there is a resistance to that, but I do believe it is asking the right question. And I remember it was early days in my career working for a company called Influitive, and we were an advocate marketing platform. And we had customers that sold to engineers. We had folks that sold to marketers and sales. And what we realized is if you asked engineers, let's say, what was of value to them, oftentimes there was, hey, don't try and gamify something for me. Just give me the straight up facts and give me access to the product roadmap once a quarter where I have influence in shaping that discussion and having an influence in the direction that you go in. And that was the cadence that they wanted. That was the high value activity that they wanted to partake in. I do think they're striking the right balance of knowing your audience, understanding what is and is not of value to them, what's the channel and forum and the cadence by which they find value in those engagements. Oftentimes in CS, even at Catalyst, we have customers who are like, we want to meet every week. And in reality, not much can be accomplished in a week's time from call to call to call. So it's actually better that we have more distance between the calls, but make sure that each call is a high impact, high value call so that between our three weeks of connecting on an actual call together, progress is made, but it's the highest impact progress that can be achieved. Are there other questions that you've leaned on over the years or just find that asking in those catch-ups tend to be particularly illuminating? For me, it's often at the end of the day, straight up success for me is that you renew one year from now when your contract's up for renewal. What needs to be true in order for us to be in a position for you to, with no hesitation, say you would absolutely renew? What would get in our way of potentially hindering your positivity and enthusiasm for that renewal and how we can get ahead of it? One of my go-to questions as well as the CSM was at any given time asking the customer, if your renewal was tomorrow, would you renew? And it was a super direct question, but I loved it because I often got a very direct answer and it was yes. And at which point I would follow up and ask the customer to walk me through why. Like, what did they justify in their mind to have the confidence to say that they would renew? And if they were like, no, that was equally as important because I said, help me understand what needs to be true for you to say, yes, I'd absolutely renew. Oftentimes at that point, I could assess are the reasons that they are saying they were not renewed today within our control and reasonable for us to be able to change? Or is it truly inevitable that they may not be a good fit customer? And it might actually just be an unfortunate situation where the best path forward is to part ways ultimately when their renewal transpires. But we obviously take that data and that learning to go, what was it about this customer that ultimately proved to not be successful in their ability to sustain and grow with us as a business? That's a really interesting point. How do you think about specifically in the very early days, if you have a product problem or a customer problem? 
That's a tricky one. And I think this is where one of the early strategies you can deploy is data and the systems and the tracking of this information. And I'll give you an example. Early days when I joined at Catalyst, we hadn't churned customers because a year had not passed basically in terms of the annual contracts that we had put in place with our early day customers. But over time, we started to see trends of customers who were renewing, customers who were expanding their investment, and customers who were ultimately churning. And we would ask the customers, those who renewed, why did they renew? And we would have themes set out. And then when it came to churn, the churn reasons and why a customer chose to part ways from us was equally as important. So product wasn't as expected based on what they were sold or Ultimately, they were unable to continue to justify the investment because of their team size. That is how, through tracking of these different examples, we were able to identify what the common themes were. Is it a product situation or is it a go-to-market strategy in terms of marketing and sales? And honestly, it's been a combination of the two in terms of my learnings across different companies over my career. Most importantly, what are the characteristics and commonalities of customers who were renewing and growing? And quickly, that shapes a set of characteristics that identify as an ideal customer profile. So at Catalyst, our sales team has been absolutely amazing in hearing, here are the characteristics of our ideal customer profile, us building a demand gen engine and an SDR motion aligned to that. But also knowing that when you're moving up market, as an example, and you're continuing to grow and expand your customer base and try to tap into a broader total addressable market, you're going to go through that inevitable stage where you're going to push the envelope. Is your product ready to go after this profile of customer, yes or no? So we also have, as part of that ideal customer profile characteristics, what we call the gray zone, which is this customer may not check all of the boxes of what we know to be the characteristics of a good fit ideal customer profile today. But based on our roadmap, based on their goals, based on the direction we're mutually headed, we feel strongly that they will be a good fit customer. And then the third level of that is bad fit, which is their requirements are not going in the direction of where we're fundamentally taking our roadmap and or they possess some of the characteristics that are commonalities of past churned customers. And we have a high level of confidence that no matter how much we would invest in them on the customer success side, they would ultimately not be a customer that would retain beyond one year. What have you learned about the training and education piece of very, very early stage customer success? You briefly mentioned this, but maybe we break apart when you think about you're a 10-person company, you have five early customers, how you think about the jobs to be done of CSM. And I'm curious, when you think about getting people deeper in the product or training them or meeting with them and educating them in some way, are there some unlocks you've had or advice you would give to founders who are doing this work for the first time? Yeah, having the CSM role be heavily focused on product education and adoption early is definitely where you want to invest your time and energy because ultimately that's where the customer is going to get value from that. A really great model to start applying early with your customers is the train the trainer model, which is to train once a resource that you're partnering with on the customer side to test your ability to enable them to then train at scale their organization on how to leverage your product. Also getting the foundation early, this is something that Catalyst did, and I think it paid off incredibly well for us in our ability to provide immediate value to those early day customers, but also help us scale because that can happen very quickly over time, which is 
building out a technical knowledge base and being able to have those self-serve resources for customers to be able to troubleshoot themselves independently if they have questions about the product. As you mature, step three is the best practices side, and that's where you're bringing recommendations and a point of view. And sometimes there's this tricky position in the market that I've seen across different tools, which is this is our way or the highway. You do it this way only. And then there's the other tools that go on the complete other end of the spectrum, which are a little bit wild west, and you can do whatever you choose to do with it. And there's no prescriptive way of how to leverage the product. The middle ground is the best. Ideally, you have a product that's robust and flexible. But from a customer success standpoint, this is where you can ultimately start owning the narrative of what the best practice and recommendation is to get highest value from the platform. On that note, is there anything you've learned about building trust in the early days with those early customers that we haven't touched on? One of the more interesting things that surfaced when I was talking to a CEO recently is he learned about building trust. This counterintuitive thing that happens when something breaks and a customer reaches out to you. One often thinks that something breaking or not working destroys trust, but actually, if you respond in 30 minutes and say, engineer X fixed this problem at ship to production, just confirming it worked, the way in which you respond and the speed at which you respond often increases trust in the relationship as opposed to decreases trust in the relationship. But I'm curious if you think about that as an important area and there's specific things that you do given what you've learned about building trust. I always say to customers, our priority is to make you a successful customer. Success for us is that you're a raving advocate from a CEO's perspective and that CS team. What is the experience you want your customers to be able to describe when interacting and engaging with you? And to your point of trust, that is 100% an example of it. I was talking to Abe, who leads customer success at Cockroach the other day, and he's like, true partnerships are tested in the toughest of times. When the platform goes down, when there's a bug, when there's a compelling event and someone needs something and it's time sensitive, do you have a partner there to support you that's there to jump on a call, to listen to the situation, to immediately take action and do everything within their control to be able to address it? That 100% goes a long way. Also, just giving an open forum of if we don't know something's broken, we can't fix it. So we are trusting in you to raise any concerns. One of the models that we use in customer success at Catalyst, a feedback framework that I got during my Envision days, and it's called Diamonds and Spades. It's a feedback model moving away from just the generic, that was great, or that could have been better. It's giving feedback with a level of specificity. We include this in our engagements with customers when we are doing our executive business reviews or even our monthly check-ins. Just wanted to take a quick pulse on how you're feeling about our relationship and our partnership right now. We use a feedback model called Diamonds and Spades. With specificity, what do you feel is the highest value engagements that you're getting from Catalyst today that we should continue to double down on because that's feeling good. It's delivering the value that you're after. It's adding significant strength to our partnership. And Spades, like if we could change anything or do something differently, what would that be in order for us to drive even further value for our relationship? And just having that as part of the DNA and the discipline of the routine engagements you have with your customers is heavily influential in building that trust and that ongoing reciprocity of feedback. So looping back a minute ago, you talked about the idea of training the trainer and starting to build out a technical knowledge base, and then eventually you might graduate into best practices. Any thoughts on where to start with any of those programs? Like, let's say you wanted to start building out a technical knowledge base. 
how to begin that? Because a lot of those things can seem a bit overwhelming, particularly when you're a 10-person team. Yeah, definitely. So it goes back to start with your early day customers. There's going to be a handful of customers or two that have come in with nothing. It's starting with them. What didn't you have that if you had it, you would have gotten faster time to value, been more self-sufficient, feeling more confident about the product. The other piece is on a more reactionary standpoint, looking at the incoming themes associated with customer inquiries to the customer success team support or even to the founder. What are those routine questions that are being asked over and over and over again? Having a resource that is a one-to-many that will achieve mass scale in your ability to distribute that and answer the questions that the customers need support on. Continuing to build on this theme of CS in the early days, how do you think about connecting those insights and conversations that are happening between a CSM, your first customer success person, and the product team and your product roadmap? Yeah, really important system to have in place. Again, enabling your customer success team to lean into bringing product to the customer is critically important. A system to invest in early is that product feature request from customers, which is I'm a CSM, maybe the only CSM, and I'm hearing these are what customers are after and making sure that there is a system that funnels that information through to product to help inform the roadmap. One of the best strategies I've seen here, even in the earliest of days, is partnering with product on what information they need in order to take a feature request from a customer and be able to make it actionable. We actually, at Catalyst, partnered with our product team to scope what a template would look like, a note template to say, okay, CSM, you're on the front lines and a customer says, I want this feature. Here are the three discovery questions that we need you to conduct in that conversation in order to drive that feature request into our system and allow it for it to be actionable and not have substantial back and forth with the customer and so many cooks in the kitchen. So a very scalable approach. And those questions were, how does it tie to your business goals? Relative to your business goals, is this a critical feature, as in you cannot get value from our product to your desired extent without it? Or is it, hey, it's not a complete blocker, but this would save me a lot of time and it would be a nice to have? The third piece was a question around if you did not have this feature and functionality, would it ultimately impact your renewal over time? That has helped us scope the prioritization and focus of the product road mapping and understanding what are the themes that are bubbling up across the customers. And then you couple that with what sales is getting on the front lines in terms of customers that they're winning and also customers that they're losing to and making sure that if there's innovation in the product as well, it can also be used as an engine for driving net new revenue for the business. On that point, you often have high signal coming from sales, and in this case, high signal coming from CS and existing customers. Given your vantage point in the field of CS working with and collaborating with product, do you have any thoughts on, as you're starting to get going in the early days, how to balance those inputs to drive the most effective product roadmap? And do you think it's more art than science? Yeah, I would agree with that. Early days, 100% more art than science. And I think the reason is because you just don't have data significance at that point. And I think that that's something to get comfortable with. Of It takes time 
to get data and track trends and themes associated with customers. When you're so early days, generally speaking, you sign customer onto a contract, it's going to be a year before you know whether or not they're going to really put their money where their mouth is and say, yeah, I'm going to continue to renew and invest in your product or I'm not. What I found with the sales and CS motion as it relates to influencing product roadmap is there is oftentimes a lot of overlap. So you can get two birds, one stone when you consolidate both of the collective lists and go, we're leaving money on the table in terms of attracting new revenue. And we are potentially putting existing customers at risk by not offering ABC features. That's the low hanging fruit in this situation is where you can achieve both. I will say that I have seen it get more challenging when you start to see more disparity between those two lists and themes where all of a sudden CS is like, we need ABC features to retain these customers and sales feels like they're on a different kind of planet with the list that they have. What I have found to be true as the underlying source of that is there is not enough alignment around what an ideal customer is. For example, your initial foundational base is selling into the SMB segment. And then all of a sudden, the sales motion is in a world of the enterprise. But CS is like, we're trying to still drive the foundational value for these SMB customers that require this feature set. I've seen when that tension gets a little higher and there's more disparity between the two, it's more of a reflection of are we aligned as an organization to go after the right customer profile for this business, or are we actually operating against two different motions? How do you communicate product roadmap with customers? And what are the most effective ways to do that in year one or two, and as you're starting to really scale in years three or four? I would say early days, that one-to-one interaction. When you've got a handful of customers, it's an appropriate forum to have your product team on a call with customers in partnership with CS going, here's the roadmap. Here's why the roadmap. This is what our longer term vision is. This is what's coming. And then the CSM helping to tie that back to the business goal specifically that the customer is trying to achieve. As you start to get into year three, year four, there's a more scaled approach to it. Like a one-to-many webinar recording, for example, may be a great forum. We use a tool called eWebinar, which allows it to be like an on-demand webinar at any point in time for a customer, but they can also submit questions throughout the webinar. So let's say we recorded and posted the webinar today. Two months from now, a new customer joins Catalyst. They could literally go watch this webinar and also submit questions about the product roadmap that then gets funneled into our team. So I think there's really great scalable tools out there that allow you to publish once but have lasting engagement and interactions with customers. The other thing that I haven't seen done as often is product roadmap by persona. And I think this is when we're dabbling in the year three, year four, but really thinking about Who is the persona that you're going after and what are the features and functionality you're building to them? If we look at Catalyst, end users are the CSMs. So they are the day-to-days managing customer accounts. But then we also in our product solve for CS leaders and what a CS leader is after in terms of trends, insights, analytics is a very different feature set than what a end user is. There's a really great opportunity as you mature and as you have more resources to think intentionally about how you can reach those audiences from a product roadmap standpoint based on the target persona that's leveraging your product. It's interesting that the current company that you're helping to build is building a product that you're the customer of. 
maybe you've had flavors of this earlier in your career, but this is obviously a one-to-one overlap. Has it changed the way that you think about customer success in any way when you're doing customer success for a product that you know as well as anyone? Most of the time, somebody doing customer success is doing it for a product they wouldn't use on a daily basis. It's definitely different. The absolute biggest luxury that I have is being CS at a CS company. There is such a centricity in our DNA of customers first. I know a lot of companies say that, but then as the CS leader, you've got your elbows up and you're trying to defend and prove your value and seat at the table, if you will. It's also a very interesting motion for our CS team where there is that imposter syndrome of these customers that I'm supporting each and every day are my peers in the industry. Like they are doing the exact same thing as I am. There's definitely this reassurance of confidence and also enablement for them to make sure that they feel really good about the best practices and lessons and learnings that they can bring to customers on their calls to help them elevate their CS organizations. The power of placing customers at the center, what I underestimated was how much that meant of me being the communication center for the business and the emphasis and the importance on the data that I bring to the leadership team each and every Wednesday when we have our leadership team meeting. It's been an adjustment to me leading CS at a CS company where there's a lot more pressure on the data, a lot more pressure on me to be prescriptive and direct with my peers and partners at the leadership level on how their departments can drive the most value for Catalyst. For all CEOs, there's this who owns the NRR number and I will continue to fall back on this is a company number. It is not a CS number to be owned. It is not a sales number to be owned. It is a collective organizational number to be owned. And to me, net revenue retention and maximizing that is a reflection of our ability to market and sell good fit customers, to be able to build a product that has met the needs of those good fit customers and continues to evolve aligned with their needs. And for a CS team who can amplify both the right expectation setting on the go-to-market engine and the right product in the hands of our customers to make sure that they're getting truly maximum value from what the offering has to provide and are able to articulate that value to those customers. I want to follow up on that idea you shared about NRR, but before that, what does it look like to be truly customer first? Are there any other rituals that you think have an outsized impact on moving the company in this customer first orientation? There is a Slack channel that we have at Catalyst called Bring CS to the Center. Anyone and everyone across the company is encouraged to put information, insights, learnings in that. That is that nucleus command center for customer wins, customer lessons, learnings. Just having a steady drumbeat in that channel is incredibly important. Danny, who oversees our community at Catalyst, he's done an amazing job at funneling G2 crowd reviews into that channel. So we are having a steady drumbeat of new reviews coming in from customers where we get to see, hey, what do they love most about Catalyst? What are the highlights for them? And if they were to give us feedback on areas that we can improve, what does that look like? We also administer surveys to our customers after implementation at the six-month mark of their contract and after their renewal. Those surveys are digging into the specificities of their engagements and the value that they're getting from their implementation manager or their CSM. We also do it after a support ticket closes, so after support and their renewal manager. The intentionality behind that is making sure that we're delivering value in the way that we believe customers have expressed to us in the past that they would like to get value from those engagements. 
Those are other forums, channels of keeping a pulse on our customers and what's working and where do we have room for improvement. All of that is also being funneled into Bring CS to the Center. So what you get at the end of the day is a steady drip of customer insights, customer intel, what they're happy with, where we have room for improvement to continue to add more value. Can you talk a little bit the key surveys that you lean on, what's in them and the why behind them? The surveys that we have are the one after a customer has launched their Catalyst instance. So that is keeping a pulse on our implementation experience. The six-month survey, so at six months into their contract, that's us keeping a pulse on their CSM experience. After their support engagement, so when a support ticket's been closed, that is keeping a pulse on their support engagement. And after their renewal, that is helping us keep a pulse on their renewal manager engagement at Catalyst. The intentionality behind all of that is to truly understand, have we met and exceeded expectations that are related to our product knowledge, our CS best practices, that million dollar question that I mentioned earlier, if your renewal was tomorrow, would you renew? We're literally asking that right after they've launched their Catalyst instance. That helps us understand, are they seeing immediate value? And if not, where did we go wrong? What's the disconnect? What can we do? between now and the time of their renewal to ensure that we course correct to get them that value. And if there's ever a gap, it allows us to very quickly, okay, we can triple down here and that's going to significantly improve our customer experience. And a really good example of that was our knowledge base. It was the one area of all of these CSAT surveys that I'm referencing. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't in the 96th percentile that we scored in every other area across these survey results. What we were able to do was to go back to customers who had completed the survey and said that the knowledge base required improvement. We expressed our appreciation for them giving us that feedback and that score and asked for additional time to go into more detail of what would it take for you to have given us a 10 out of 10 on your knowledge base experience? What does our knowledge base not have today that if we did have it, you would have been like, no brainer, 10 out of 10 couldn't be any better. That's really helped guide the relaunch of our knowledge base. I wanted to loop back on the comment you made, everyone owns the NRR number. I think intuitively that makes sense. If you think about a customer churning, for example, is it a product problem or a CS problem or a sales problem with the wrong ICP, for example? How do you create a culture of ownership, accountability, and autonomy around that NRR number, which is one of the few numbers that across any company matters so much? How do you create alignment where in its best, everyone's rowing the boat in line with one another, as opposed to people blaming each other when maybe the number's not where it needs to be? This is a tough one. It starts with the CEO, starts with the leadership team in terms of the communication and setting the expectation of what that number means and what that represents for the business. And then each functional leader being able to distill that down to their respective team to understand what each department's role is in the success of that. So if I am on the engineering side, a big piece of net revenue retention is not only the ability to support the building of new features and functionality, but the platform maintenance and stability of a platform. You can launch every new bell whistle feature imaginable, but if the platform isn't stable, then it's a no-brainer. That net revenue retention is going to be impacted. It's on the engineering leader to make sure that the right measures are in place around this is what we can do within our control to maximize the customer experience, to maximize the likelihood of a customer wanting to renew. On the marketing and the sales side, it's again within their control. 
what is the ideal customer profile that we are selling to? And are we or are we not abiding by the disciplines of selling against that? If yes, then amazing. They're doing everything within their control. Now, where it can get arguably a little sticky is targets and numbers and total addressable market versus good fit customers. And that's where I honestly think it comes down to the CEO and the collective leadership partnering to say, what is the trade-off there? Have we set reasonable targets for the business that are attainable based on ensuring that we are selling customers that can be successful using our product? There are different measures and metrics that you can apply to each of the respective departments. So for example, we had an amazing candidate. He's joining our sales engineering team shortly here. And I was watching his panel presentation the other day. For context, he's going to be running a proof of concept motion for prospects at Catalyst. And he said, a fail to me is if I help close a prospect in our POC motion that goes into implementation and becomes at risk. That's the level you want to hire for. Someone who innately knows that if I close a deal and they become at risk as a customer, I have sold someone that should not be here at Catalyst because that is immediately a red flag. How do you think about this role of account expansion and the interplay between CS and sales or maybe some sort of specialist function? I have seen this tape many shapes and forms. There's a nuance, which is every business is unique. There is no one size fits all. I'll just put that out as a disclaimer. What I can say is a major lesson I learned at a past company was that the CSM became the scapegoat of all things land on CS. Like, hey, you need to onboard our customers, drive their adoption, have multi-thread relationships, run QBRs, make sure that they're getting value from our product, run any escalations. Oh, and you need to manage any expansion opportunities and run their renewal. Okay, good luck. Do that with 30 accounts. That's not going to set anyone up for success. Be intentional about the roles that you develop and the value they deliver your customers and the impact that they drive for the business. So for example, the learning that I had at a past company was CSMs were the jack of all trades. And then things got challenging. We hit some major, major headwinds on the product and the ability to ship what we were trying to ship because of some technical debt and restructuring that was needed. We then had some hot competition coming in from our competitors, which was causing full force strategies on how do we retain and articulate value to our customers. And when I surveyed the CS team to be like, how are you spending your time? Over 60% of their time was actually being spent on commercial negotiations let alone the 40% of the rest of their time, which was spent between internal meetings, prepping for customer calls, and then a few subset customer calls. Ultimately, we had a major retention issue on our hand, but the retention was also rooted in the fact that customers hadn't adopted our product. But when we were like, who is accountable for adopting the product? It was supposed to be the CSMs, but we hadn't enabled them and put a structure in place that actually allowed them to execute against that because they were getting bogged down with the necessity of actually renewing these customers from a commercial standpoint, pitching them pricing, chasing down paperwork, et cetera. So from my experience, let CSMs be accountable for building multi-threaded relationships, driving adoption and value of the product, articulating that value, and ensuring that in doing so, they have a steady pulse at all times on the customer and their desire to renew and what needs to be true for that to happen. Separately, have a team, and this could be a account manager or a renewal manager or someone on the sales team, who is responsible for the commercials as it relates to the renewal and for expansion. 
devils always come down to the details of compensation plans in terms of the variable comp of customer success managers and alignment to this other cross-functional partner that is driving expansion. My recommendation is to always incentivize the CSMs to have their listening ears on for expansion opportunities and to flag that and tag that to the individual who's actually responsible for driving the execution of the expansion. That was the most successful model when I was back in my influitive days. I was earlier in my career, I was called a strategist. My sole job was driving expansion within our customer base. But in order for me to do that effectively, I had to partner very closely with the CSMs so that I understood what the customer's business goals were, what their health was, whether they were getting the intended value, and whether there were opportunities for product expansion or adoption. What I was compensated on, the CSMs were also compensated on. So when a customer did expand, it was a win-win for both of us. And there was a keen appetite for us to be able to partner really well together. On that point, are there other important ideas you figured out about what a good comp plan looks like for a CSM? Yep. Keep it simple. As simple as possible. Hybrid of leading and lagging indicators is also critically important. One of the comp models that I saw at Envision that I really loved was based on analysis on what needed to be true from a product adoption standpoint for us to have a strong likelihood that that customer would renew. I might be a little fuzzy on the exact numbers, but it was something like drive over 30% adoption in the first 15 days of the customer launching. And there was a 95% likelihood that that customer was renewing. So that was one of the leading indicators that was part of my comp plan to get X percentage of my customers above that threshold within 15 days of launch. I would be running the training programs associated with getting them logged into their accounts and set up, driving that early adoption. And then a lagging indicator, I was ultimately comped on gross retention and net revenue retention. So the overall combination of the two. The one other piece that I will say was a really good learning is making sure that there is a threshold for that gross retention expectation in a comp plan. Because what I have seen is when you combine net revenue retention, you could be bleeding out customers from a gross retention standpoint, but land a couple whales in terms of expansion in a quarter. And all of a sudden your net revenue retention looks absolutely magical but you've just churned a good number of customers that you want to retain in the business. So just making sure that the model is ironclad in that the outcomes you want to drive for the business, both gross retention and those expansion dollars are captured to incentivize that behavior. And there isn't a loophole of if I just crush my expansion, it doesn't really matter how many customers retain because as long as I get these three whales in, I'm looking real good. Do you solve for that by focusing on logos as well as dollars or something else? It came down to the gross retention numerical number. So like $100,000 of your $125,000 up for renewal had to be achieved for you to get the maximum payout. Got it. And when you think about the breakdown between base and these two variable comp features, one is leading and one is lagging. What does that ultimately look like? And is leading and lagging equally weighted when you think about total comp? Typically what I've seen, and I think this worked well, was the lagging indicator. So the net revenue retention and gross retention carried a heavier weight. It was around a 70-30 split. And I think that part of that was just a level of focus and intentionality. There was enough skin in the game of that leading indicator that I wasn't going to screw up making sure that I was doing my trainings and getting that early adoption. 
But there was also a full court press to make sure that I was bringing in the dollars in quarter for the business that were necessary for us to continue to fuel the growth relative to our targets. So I wanted to switch gears slightly now as we're talking about comp philosophy and go back to where we started, which is when you're an early team, let's say you're 10 or 15 or 20 people and you're hiring your first customer success person. How should you think about ideal profile for hire number one and why? Someone who is independent. And what I mean by that is they're not a lone wolf, but they can survey the situation. They're just a keener. They are raring to go. They are the person that you need to pull back, not push forward. That is the type of characteristic you're definitely looking for in the early days. You're looking also for someone who is a strong communicator with others. They are not shy. They are naturally inquisitive. They are going to get out there. They're going to ask questions. They are going to share their learnings. They are a bit of a go-getter in that fashion. Adaptability and resiliency are two other critical features. When you were early days in any company, you just got to roll with it and you got to be okay rolling with it and you got to be okay with two days never looking the same. And this is not just a first-time CSM hire, but an anytime CSM hire, coachability. That is super critical to make sure that you can coach once and that person retains that. They put that in the knowledge bank of, okay, this is the feedback I got. This is what I need to do differently. This is why and the impact that'll have. How do you think about seniority and experience level for that first hire? I've seen both. If I even look at myself, I was hired as employee number 12, first ever CS person at a tech company in Toronto called Polar Mobile. I had no experience. I had jobs in college, nothing in tech, and they took a gamble on me. And I would say that there are many folks that I mentor early days that have the same background as me, did not have years of experience, but had the fundamentals of, I love problem solving. I'm an eager beaver. I want to learn as I go. I want feedback. Totally okay with an environment that's ever-changing. Show me what this is all about. Let's go. You don't have to go for my first CSM. I need to have someone who's got five years of experience. I definitely don't think that is necessary. You're definitely taking a gamble with someone like myself. If you're going to hire someone with a little bit more experience, it's important that they know what they're getting themselves into. I think sometimes if you hire someone with a couple more years of experience, they're already like, hey, I want to be down this path of manager or I want to be down this path of individual contributor. So just making sure that you feel confident enough in your line of sight of what that path could look like. It's absolutely a win-win if one of your early day CS hires is someone who ultimately wants a path into management. I was very fortunate at Catalyst that Kyle Clark, who started as an IC implementation manager, individual contributor, and Victoria Becker, who started as a support engineer as an individual contributor, both of them had manager aspirations. They did the role as an individual contributor for the first year. They learned our customers. They learned our product. They learned the ins and outs of our business to a great extent and then naturally transitioned into a manager role. Continuing down this path, what do you think is the difference between a top 1% CSM that you've worked with and a top 10%? Not just a great CSM versus not a good one, but the difference between a very good CSM and the absolute best. Two things, fearless and operating rhythm. Steph Robinson, she's amazing CS leader at Maze now. Steph and Gloria at Catalyst as well. They're in the 1% of CSMs that I've had the fortune of working with. When I say fearless and operating rhythm, what I mean by that, fearless is they're not afraid to ask the tough questions. 
leaning into, if your renewal was tomorrow, would you renew? You're telling me no. What needs to be true in order for you to renew? And they're just digging deeper and deeper discovery to truly unearth what the core of it is. And they're also fearless in their ability to advocate cross-functionally. They're not afraid to go to sales and say, hey, sales, wanted to share a lesson learned here of a customer who had improper expectations relative to how our product worked or how their customer experience would be. They're just fearless in being able to lean into the tougher conversations and they are not timid. The second is the operating rhythm. In CS in particular, you are taking it from different angles each and every day. There's just this breadth of information overload. And it's hard to decipher where do you spend your time? How do you spend it? What is going to be the calorie burned that has the highest impact in ultimately influencing your customer's ability to renew and grow? If I think of Gloria, if I think of Steph Robinson, they just had such an operating rhythm down with how they prioritized their day-to-day how they prioritize their book of business, their intentionality behind asking customers, what can I do that would make our engagements of highest value that would contribute to your desire to be a long-term partner of us? And then they built their whole day-to-day actions and activities around delivering against that. And often that was the ability to bring analysis to the table that customers didn't have at their fingertips that we could bring to them. Other than sharing those ideas with call it a top 10% CSM. If someone's listening to this and they want to grow into that 1% role, what kind of coaching would you give them? The coaching would start with the foundation of honest assessment, your fearlessness. Let's start with that one. Are you asking these tough questions? I always ask CSMs and often in the coachable moments of this, I'm like, what questions did you have in your mind on that call that you didn't ask? And often they're the right questions, just didn't have the guts for whatever reason (laughs) to lean in and ask it. And I'm like, okay, so guess what? I'm going to tell you right now, the diamond is those are the right questions. That's the level of specificity and detail you absolutely need to be asking your customers. The spade here is that you did not ask the question. And because of that, you're compromised in your ability as a CSM to be very intentional about your next steps that are truly going to be of highest value and impact to your customers. Then it's a matter of, okay, unpack to me. You had the hardest part down in terms of coming up with the right question. What prevented you from feeling confident enough to ask that question? And people have different takes on that just based on their own personal experiences. Oh my God, I think the customer might think I'm too aggressive or, oh my God, I might not be prepared to respond to their answer. So the training then comes into understanding where the scaries lie and then how to help unpack what that could look like to dispel that fear. When it comes to the coachability of the operating rhythm, it's honestly an exercise of tell me how you are spending your day today. When you look at those actions and activities, what do you conclude the day going, damn, that was the right place to spend my time. I'm proud of that time. I'm proud of the outcome that that produced for me. Tell me about the things that you did that you felt like you checked a box and had to do. And then really getting disciplined about unpacking why those scope creeps are happening. This is something I think becomes extra apparent as a manager. And I always talk to my managers about this. Could you do it? Absolutely. Should you do it? Probably not. It might be a growth opportunity for a member of your team. It's also an opportunity for you to give them coachable moments. If they flub their way through that one, no problem. They're learning. This is a great opportunity for you as a manager to lean in and be able to give a coachable moment. So flipping back over 
to identifying and pulling this type of talent into your company? You outlined the idea of really sensational CSMs. How did those ideas translate to how you think about what a world-class interview process looks like? And are there certain questions or activities that you find provide a disproportionate amount of value in figuring out, is someone going to check these different boxes? On the topic of fearlessness, the inquisitiveness, it's just listening. How does someone show up to an interview? Are they peppering me with questions and interviewing me more than I'm interviewing them? If yes, great sign. To me, that one's more I'm making a mental note going, is someone really, really digging in here? And if so, that level of inquisitiveness, discovery, fearlessness to ask me the tough questions, you got my attention. I'm eager. I'm listening. There's also testing on the resiliency side, whether you want to share something that happened in your personal life or your professional life. What is a time that really knocked you to your knees? What did you do about it? And what did you learn? Operating rhythm in part comes down to one in the interview process that's a one-to-one, which is here's your book of business. I'm going to give a hypothetical scenario. How do you manage through your day-to-day? What are your priorities? What is not a priority and why? And seeing how they navigate that. The second piece testing for the operating rhythm is often this panel presentation putting the CSM through the paces of, okay, you have a customer, this is their scenario, they're at risk, they have a renewal coming up, and giving them the paces to ask for the discovery questions and then prepare a presentation that convinces me that we should move forward with the partnership. And how would you manage against that day-to-day? What are the expectations they set? Are they able to connect the tissue between the business goals, what the product can achieve, how the product is being used today? Is there an opportunity there? Are they driving the long-term vision of the partnership forward? And how would they manage in the day-to-day execution of that partnership to see through the expectations that they just set? Is that one of the most important parts of the interview for you, this panel concept? Absolutely. And if anyone's questioning, oh my gosh, we have too many steps in our process, should we really do a panel? I would say, if you have to cut something, do not cut the panel. The number of times that we had candidates that we were like, wow, strong yes, like across the board or yeses across the board in all of the one-to-one interviews. And then you get to panel and you're like, what happened? You mentioned this a little bit a second ago, but can you go a level deeper and explain how you run that panel process? What you want to do is you want to create an experience that is going to be a simulation of what their reality is coming to your business. Test them for the environment that they're going to be walking into and give them a real life scenario that either maybe you're dealing with as a business right now or have dealt with in the past. Try and make it as real life as possible relative to the role that they would be stepping in. Another piece is not giving them all the details. Do not serve every last detail on a silver platter. This is where you're testing for the discovery. Do they have all the information that they need? They shouldn't. So what they should be doing in that situation is asking a couple clarifying discovery questions to get the information that they need to then be able to translate that information in ultimately the panel presentation. And that's where you're testing for that fearlessness as well. The third piece of advice that I would give is ensuring that the panel is representative of a couple different people on the team, if you can, if you have access to that. And again, we're testing the candidate for how well do they interact with different personas at varying levels of seniority within the organization? How well are they able to engage those individuals and cater their messaging and their focus 
with multiple stakeholders present. Maybe to wrap up, we could end with one of my favorite questions, which is when you think of who you are in this case as a leader and a functional leader in technology, who do you think has had the biggest outsized impact on you and what did they teach you or what did you learn from them? The first one is John Zifkin. He now is director of customer success at Airtable. John taught me that it's okay to be friends with your team. And he taught that to me early. So John was my first ever manager in technology. I came out of school thinking a manager is like your boss and there's a firm line in terms of professionalism. Your boss can't be friends. Like that old school mentality. This is 11 years ago. John was and has been my friend since day one. And I think my trust in him because of his approach to treating me as if I am a friend, his investment in me to be successful personally and professionally as a friend was so influential in me early on in terms of the type of manager and leader that I wanted to be and to really lead people first. If you give people the guidance and direction, if you invest in them, if you are there to support, if you help them understand that it's your health, it's your family, that above everything else, people bring their best selves to work and truly appreciate the environment they have, the safety within that environment, and will do incredible things for the organizations that they're a part of. And I am so, so grateful to have had John set that tone for me as an amazing manager foundation out of the gate. That to me has been very influential in the type of leader I want to be remembered for. The second is Julie Persofsky. I have never had more direct feedback from a manager in all my life than Julie Persofsky. I also grew so much because of her discipline on feedback. And what I loved about working for Julie is I was never questioning whether I was doing well or not well. I always knew because she was so consistent in the repetition of her feedback. If I was doing well, she'd give me feedback. I'd understand what it was that I was doing well and the impact that that was having. And if there were room for improvement, I was definitely hearing about that too. I was learning what I needed to do differently and what that impact would be and why. So those two, I would say, have been the most influential. Great place to end. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. 